Uh, we are in part 11 of our Joshua series. Some of you have been with us through this whole series. Some of you are just coming in uh, right in the middle of it. This is going to sound a little convoluted to some of you that have not been with us for a while. So feel free to catch up on the podcast uh, online. But we're in part 11 and I entitled today's message, Holy War. And let me give you the, the bottom line of what we're going to talk about today. As we're going through all these stories about Joshua leading the Israelites to kill all the Canaanites and take all their land, that should bother some of you, right? It's kind of, how in the world is that okay? How is it okay for the Jews to come in, slaughter everybody in this area of land, take their land, and God seems to go, well done. How in the world is that even possible? So we cannot move forward in our series without addressing that critical issue. In the two chapters that we're going to read through today, chapters 11 and 12 in Joshua, this is kind of a recap of military conquest. I thought this was a beautiful time to address this topic. Because I would hope that for some of you, you realize that just going around and killing people and taking their stuff is not a good thing, right? Are we all, we're all pretty clear on that part? All right. Pretty far down our discipleship path then. Great. Now, in order to understand this, there's a few concepts we need to lay down. Then we're going to read through the passage rather quickly and then hit the main subject as a close. So let's go ahead and uh, I just need you to listen to a few passages as we begin. The first thing that I need us to understand and lock into our mind is something very foreign to us in modern day America. And it is the idea that God is creator and that he's in charge. Uh, that is something that we wrestle with in our hearts. We wrestle with submitting our lives. We wrestle with the idea of surrender. We wrestle with the idea that anyone else would tell us what to do. However, it is something that if we are ever going to follow God properly, we must embrace and understand. So I begin with a intriguing concept about God being a creator and being able to do with his creation whatever he desires. So listen to these three passages and see if you can't pick up the theme. The first one's Isaiah 45, 9. You can just listen to this. It says, woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and his maker concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. All right, that's pretty clear. I think, I think God kind of just said it straightforward. What's his point? I'm God. Stop acting like you are. Right? And if I decide that I want you to do this, that's exactly what we're going to do. God is absolutely in control and he has the right to put certain callings and move the pieces rightly. We are to play a part in a grand drama of what God is doing to display his glory on earth. Second passage, Jeremiah 18:1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the potter's wheel. 
But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does? Declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Cannot God shape us into something different than we are even right now? And is that not good? If we could fully embrace the idea that we are here for the glory of God, then we would stop arguing and competing for position. Last passage, Romans 9.20. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? To us, this is stinging and irritating. What are you saying? You're saying the world doesn't revolve around me. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Is that what God's saying? Yes, that's exactly what God is saying. Indeed, God created us for a purpose. The purpose of that creation was to display before the world and the angels who God is. We are to play pieces in that great drama. And if you would imagine, maybe in your mind, in kind of a weird way, imagine that we do a great drama display here on the stage and a prop begins to mouth up. The prop says, well, why do I got to be a prop? Like, well, we're doing a play. Well, I don't want to be a prop. Well, you are. That's what we made you for. Yeah, but I'm always the backdrop. That's because you're a backdrop. Yes, I know, but I never get to be out front. Well, if you're out front, you'd be blocking everybody else. That's why you're a backdrop. Yeah, but no one ever talks about me. No one ever says, what an amazing backdrop. (laughs) But if we don't have a backdrop, we cannot do the play. Well, I don't like my role. This is what we're all doing every day. God, I don't like it. I don't like the part that I'm playing. I don't like what's going on here. I want to be more important. I want to do something significant. And the whole time we need to realize God is orchestrating a massive move. And if we keep jockeying for position and running out of position, it's ruining the play. It's very hard for everyone to get the point of the play when all the props are moving and running around. You're like, who am I supposed to be looking at? Am I looking at that? Am I looking at that? What am I looking at? The whole time God's like, would you just slow down, please? Stop. I'm trying to tell the world something. Oh, but it's about me, right? We need to embrace the concept that we were created for a purpose and we must work in conjunction with that purpose. But what if it's a purpose that you don't like? That begins our concept. The blessing of this is that if indeed God is in control of everything, then that means your enemies are not. I know you don't like having someone over control of you, but I know you like God being in control of your enemies. I know that you sleep better knowing that you have a God who's so big and mighty that no enemy may ever stand against him. I know that's comfortable. The blessing of having God bigger 
is peace in your life. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Deep down, we really do want God in control. That is what your fill in the blank says, right? Yeah? All right, fantastic. Deep down, we really, last night it says, do not want God in control. <laughs> I didn't do that one. I'm just going to say right now, I'm throwing someone else under the bus. That was not me. All right, moving on. Deep down, we really do want God in control. Would you turn with me to Joshua chapter 11? It's page 159, 159 in the Bible's handed to you. Joshua chapter 11. It's in the Old Testament, so it's going to be back towards the left in the Bible. Uh, one of the concepts that we need to add as well to our understanding of who God is, is that God is a warrior. As we've been going through this book of Joshua, it's impossible not to see that. We're not always comfortable with God being a warrior, but I think that we've sufficiently displayed why that's important, why that's key. And we're going to see a lot more of that today. So let's recap. Israel has been moving in to the promised land and they have been fighting along the way and capturing key territory. First, they started on the east side of the river with Moses, took that territory. Now they crossed the river and have cut through the middle of the heart of the land and they've devastated the south and now they're going to be taking the north. Well, the north's getting very nervous. They're not okay with this. They're going to put a coalition together to wipe out Israel once and for all. That's where we pick up Joshua 11.1. 1. So let's pray for the word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we'd be able to read through history and to see what you're doing. And God, as we begin to try to figure out who you are so we can worship you, we get confused. We don't understand fully why you do what you do. But yet today, may we understand a little bit more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Joshua chapter 11, verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, meaning that Israel was winning, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Akshaph, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, to the Arabah south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills and in the Naphoth door on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country. And to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah, verse four, they came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. All right, let's pause there for a moment. What's the scenario? Another impossible war. Uh, Numerous as the sand is of the seashore, as much as Israel has already fought and won a lot of the battles, most of those have been fought by God. Remember the whole hailstones coming down from the sky and squishing people? Do you remember that? All right. So they're not super confident in their ability to win a war, especially something this large. So let's make it practical and personal. In your life, there is something daunting that stands before you. There is a task that God has given you that is absolutely impossible. It's either fixing a marriage, it's raising your kids, it's taking care of your parents, it's trying to figure out retirement. It's something that is before you that's absolutely insurmountable. And here it comes at you. What happens then? 
Joshua has learned by this time that if God says it's okay, it's okay. I have not yet learned that fully in my life. The story goes on, verse 6, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, which is very difficult, because by this time tomorrow, he even gives them a time frame, I will hand all of them over to Israel slain. Well, that'll be nice. You are to hamstring their horses, poor horses, and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly, Surprise attack at the waters of Meram and attacked them and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them, pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Mizrafoth, Mame, and to the valley of Mizpah on the east until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. All right. Sounds a little brutal. Let's keep moving on. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. Verse 11, I need you to try to digest this. Everyone in it, they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anything that breathed. You're going to hear that twice today. He burned up Hazor itself. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah and the mountains of Israel with their foothills. From Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. And Joshua waged war against these kings for a long time. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. And now I want you to absorb verse 20. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally. Exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites. Who are the Anakites? But you remember who they are? They are the race of the giant people. Now, we're not talking about giants like 100 feet tall. Okay, not, nothing like that. The giants of the land were a certain race of folks, a certain family line that were bigger than everybody else. The most famous of the Anakites was Goliath. If you remember David fought Goliath, that's going to happen later in the Bible. Goliath was from the city of what? Gath. And he was how tall? Nine feet tall. There is a messed up gene pool somehow. It also said that these guys had many digits on their hands and feet. There was something going on in their genes. Now, these guys were massive. The Anakites were the largest people group, the toughest people group. They are going to be battled right here. Another impossible task. It was the Anakite people that made Israel originally not even want to go in here. 
Because they said, they're giants, we're like grasshoppers. There's no way we're going to win these guys. But impossible is not impossible to God. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab. From all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua totally destroyed them in their towns. No Anakites were left in the Israelite territory, only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. That's the whole line where we get Goliath later on. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. And then 12 caps it off. These are the kings of the land whom the Israelites had defeated and whose territory they took over east of the Jordan, meaning on Moses' watch. Verse 2, Sihon, king of the Amorites. Verse 4, and the territory of Og, king of Bashan. Go to verse 6. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the Israelites conquered them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to be their possession. These are the kings of the land that Joshua and the Israelites conquered on the west side of the Jordan. That's the new territory. Verse 8, the hill country, the western foothills, the Arabah, the mountain slopes, the desert, and the Negev. The lands of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Look at the last verse, 31 kings in all. All right, so that's our piece. We could just blow by that. And I would imagine if you're reading at home on your own, you would ignore this, right? Because you can read the titles and go, ah, blah, 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 lots of names. There is, however, a couple pieces you need to see. One, the insurmountable battle. Two, the Anakite peoples. Too much difficult stuff. Yet God brought them through. But all along the way, it kept mentioning people groups that had families, I understand we all like nice categories, good guys, bad guys. Unfortunately, it's not that clean. Israel is devastating whole people groups. How is that okay? We do not have time today to address the issue of war in general. I get asked the question periodically, Lance, what do you think about the war in Iraq? What do you think about the idea of going to war with Iran? Iran has nuclear capability. They've already said they don't care for the United States. How do we think that should go? Here's my answer. I have no idea. Why do I have no idea? Because it's a complicated issue. Half the time you look at it and you don't even get all the information. You need to realize that sometimes there's incredible mixed motives. Some people are fighting for good reasons. Some people are fighting for bad reasons. You realize that everyone starts throwing out issues of motivation. Is it all about oil? Is it all about money? Is it all about protection? Is it all about freedom? What is it about? And everybody's got an opinion. I do not have the ability to go through today and handle all the issues of war. I don't even have that kind of knowledge. But I do know this war but i do know this campaign why because it's in history it's a done deal and there's plenty of information to talk exactly about motivations so let's handle this war specifically a couple things that we need to do if you take notes you might want to take notes from here on out on some of these ideas because you might need to wrestle with them a little bit later 
first thing we need to understand, this war is not just any war. This war was not one nation trying to come in and for personal gain, just take other people's stuff. You go, but that, that's, that's what they did. Kind of. This war actually is not about Israel. This war is about God. Why? Well, it's God's war for these specific reasons. Let me give you four reasons why it's actually God's war, not Israel's war. For example, and I'll, let me just pause right here. If Israel suddenly decided to go, I don't know, go take over Germany, right? Let's say they just launch this massive battle, take off, go a long distance and start attacking Germany. Would that be okay? No, it's not okay. Then what's different about this? This is God's war. Four reasons. Number one, God started the war and God maintained the war. You go, what do you mean he started the war? He's the one that provoked them to do it. All through these stories, God keeps telling them who to attack and what to do. Then we just read the verse that said he hardened the hearts of the Canaanites. So they kept fighting back so that God would totally annihilate them. In other words, he's even provoking them and causing them to get into battles. And you go, well, that's no way. God doesn't harden people's hearts. What are you talking about? You sure? Anybody remember the story of Egypt? Right? God wanted to get Israel out of Egypt. What did he do? He launched 10 plagues. You remember? Why did it take 10 plagues to get it done? Because every time Pharaoh would say yes, and then what? Change his mind. Harden his heart. The Bible specifically says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he would bring down another plague. God hardened his heart all the way until his firstborn son was killed. It also says that once Israel got out, he hardened the heart of the Egyptians to chase them so they might all be killed in the water. The whole army. Why in the world would God do that? He said, so that all may know my power and glory. You okay with that? That's rough. Try to sort that one out. Well, a couple other reasons. It also says that today, one of the reasons why the Jewish people are not embracing Jesus and doing all this kind of thing, it's actually written in Scripture. Why? Because they've been hardened in part so that the Gentiles of full measure would come in. The only reason... Why they are hardened in part is so that we could become part of the family. Is God allowed to do that? Yes. He started the war. He maintained the war. This isn't Israel's war. Number two, he fought the war. I don't think I have to remind you the whole walls falling down, hailstones knocking people out, right? God's literally fighting the war. It's his war. He keeps telling Joshua, go out and do your part. I'm going to do the rest. Number three, it wasn't their stuff. How do we know that? Jericho. The first battle of the whole campaign, they weren't allowed to touch any of it. Remember? Why? Because God goes, this whole region is mine. 
Now I'm going to share with you kids so you'll have stuff to eat. And yes, you'll get the plunder from all the other cities, but not the first one. Because symbolically, everything is mine. I may share it with you, but this is not for you to just take and think that it's all you. This has always been me. Number four. God told the plan way ahead of time. God told Abraham, this is exactly how it's going to go down. You're going to go on the promised land. He communicates it through Moses. He says, Moses, this is how it's going to go down. Joshua is just following orders. This is not Israel's battle. This is God's. All right. So we have to keep these in mind that, first of all, this is not one country just wanting to go steal stuff from another country. This is God doing something different. This is primarily about judgment. Do you know the difference between judgment and war? War, selfish, judgment is punishment about something. Interesting. Keep your finger in Joshua. Actually, we're done with Joshua. Jump back to Leviticus 18. Go back to the left in your Bibles. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus 18. Don't ever read this chapter to your children. It is about the scariest passage ever as far as nighttime devotions. Okay? We're going to read only the end of it. It is a listing of all kinds of bizarre stuff. And at the end... This is what it says, Leviticus 18:24. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Who's he talking about? The Canaanite peoples they're wiping out right now. Even the land was defiled, verse 25, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws, Israel. The native born and the aliens among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you and the land became defiled. Verse 28. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out just as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Why is this happening? Judgment. It is not war. It's judgment. All right. So how can this be fair? That's really what's in our, all our hearts, right? We want to know how it's fair. How's it fair to go kill all these people in judgment? All right. I got six points for you as we close. Ready? Six points. Here we go. We'll fly through them fast. Number one, God is holy, just, and loving. Holy, just, and loving. You've got to balance those out. Everything must be upheld for him to be God. His holiness demands a response to the sin that's going on in his world. His justice demands that it be fair. His love demands that it be good. And that's what you're seeing displayed before you. Number two. This is a lesson for the world. And some of God's lessons are brutal. Anybody remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Right? Remember that? The whole rain down fire and brimstone, wipe it out thing? Does God do that to everyone that sins? No, clearly not. Right? I mean, it's a rarity. This is a rarity. 
There is no other indicator where God is just taking his people and just randomly going and slaughtering people. It's a very strange story. And it's being done for a purpose. And this lesson is very dramatic to the world. It's a lesson about sin and judgment. Number three, God didn't take sides. How's it fair? God didn't take sides. You go, yes, he did. He's, he's letting Israel win. Right before Joshua walked up to take the first city of Jericho, who met him out on the plains? Remember? God comes walking out. The commander of God's army comes walking out. Joshua sees him. Asked him the obvious blatant question. What was the blatant question? You on our side or their side? What did the commander of the army of God say? No. Neither. I'm not on anybody's side. I'm on my side. I'm not on their side. I'm not on your side. Stop making this about sides. It's not. God didn't take sides. You go, well, I don't, I don't believe that. That's not, that's not right. All right, let me give you point four. God did the same to his own kids. God did the same to his own kids. Why? Have you ever read the Old Testament? All right, here's how the Old Testament mostly works. You start out with history books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law, right? Then you enter into more history, which is the whole David, Saul, those guys. Then it starts, the whole rest of it is all what? The prophets and wisdom literature. What are all the prophets talking about? Have you ever read any of those? I mean, they're all the ones that you avoid. Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, right? Nobody cares about those. Have you ever read them? Ezekiel, Jeremiah, those guys? What are they all talking about? They're all talking about how Israel had been exiled from their land. That's what the whole Bible in the Old Testament really is about. Israel went through this. They sinned, violated God's covenant. God brought in the, the, what? The Assyrians to take out the north in 722 BC wiped out Israel. Innocent as well as guilty. Devastated them, carted them all off and took them out of their land. In 586 BC, he let the Babylonians destroy the south. And all those prophets are talking about, oh, woe is us, when are we getting back to our land? God does the same thing to his kids. You go, well, I'm not convinced. All right, let me give you a couple more points on this. Why was Israel in bondage for 400 years in Egypt? Do you remember? Because I don't know if bondage is bad or good. I'm pretty assuming it's bad, right? All right, they were under mistreatment, not initially, but later. For four generations, 400 years, they were in slavery. Why? The Bible tells us, in what? Genesis 15:13. Take a look at that. First book of the Bible, Genesis 15:13. There are many of you right now that don't care at all about what I'm talking about. You do, Mike? Thank you. Mike does. Genesis 15:13. This is what God said to Abraham way before any of this happened. He said, then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants, the Jews, will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved, and they will be mistreated for hundred years. That's pretty bad. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, that's Egypt, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. 
All right. Verse 16 tells you why they had to be beaten and in bondage for 400 years. Verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to the promised land for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Why is Israel in bondage for 400 years? Because God's dealing with the Canaanite people. For 400 years, he's working with them. For 400 years, he puts his kids off to the side just to work with them. Do you understand? This is not about sides. This is not about I'm going to do everything for my kids, nothing for the other guys. He literally put his kids away in bondage for four generations while he's dealing with this very same people group, leading them to repentance. As they resist it, he calls it. And need I remind you of the two stories that were back to back? Rahab, the prostitute that was not a Jew, is saved, while Achan, the Jew, is stoned by the community. Non-kid saved, kid killed. It's the same thing. God's not taking sides. Number five, the fifth reason why it's fair. Fifth reason, fair warning. God always gives lots of warning before he judges. Now, it may appear sudden to you because you weren't paying attention. But he has been very clear when he's going to wipe someone out. For example, the flood. Anybody remember how long it took for Noah to build a boat? Why did he have to build such a huge boat? Well, he had a bunch of stuff that he had to carry. Yeah, but God really didn't give him a whole lot of help. He pretty much had to build it on his own with his kids, right? How long did it take him? Because the whole time Noah was preaching that a flood was coming. So how long did he preach? Anybody remember? It is some, most scholars believe that the verse in the Bible that refers to it would refer to the fact that it took about 150 years in preparation. 150 years. That's a lot of warning. Were they still caught off guard? Yep. If you don't want to listen, you're not going to listen. Sodom and Gomorrah. What was Lot doing all the time when he was in Sodom and Gomorrah? It says he was preaching righteousness. Then they got wiped out. God always warns in advance. Did he warn the Canaanite peoples? Yep. For 400 years. Then he said, we're done. And you go, wow, boy, those people are kind of stupid, huh? Really? Isn't Jesus coming again? Did you read Revelation? Oh, that's right. He's been giving us fair warning for 2,000 years that he's coming again. And he's going to come with judgment and he's going to wipe out the world. He's been telling you for 2,000 years. We have plenty of fair warning. How is it fair that God's going to bring down judgment? Because he's been telling you and providing you an opportunity out. Of course it's fair. Last reason. Number six, this was not only judgment, this was about purity. Israel was too weak to handle heavy levels of temptation, just like we are. So God had to cut a huge clearing for them just to live. 
He knew that if they were around other people that would influence them in serving other gods, they'd bail immediately. Was he right? Yes. The only reason they made it as long as they did is because God cut out a massive territory and cleared their borders and said, get rid of all this so you can live holy. But they ruined his plan, right? That's what we find out. They didn't do everything God asked them to do. They did not cut out the swath perfectly. And so they ended up screwing up as a nation and ended up getting wiped out. But what was God's intent? To make his kids succeed and victorious. Now, let's make it all personal. Your life. Stuff's going on in your life. God's given you fair warning on it. God has begun to deal with it. God knows that you're weak. God is attempting to cut a huge swath around you so you can even handle it. But we resist him and we compromise and keep making things harder. That was not God's intent. God's desire is that we be holy and righteous. Last point. Do you see that God is in control? He dictates who's in what land at what time. He dictates, even sets a timetable in advance and says, and you have this long and you're done. I'll do it to my kids. I'll do it to the world. I'll do it to everybody. This is the exact limitations that you have. If God is in control, the enemy is not. He is not in control in your life. He is not in control in your family's lives. He is not in control of anything. He can only do what he is allowed to do. I know the world feels out of control. It's not. I know it feels that your personal life is out of control. It's not. As we partner with God, his will will be done. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you would share with us the behind the scenes, behind the curtain reasons for why you do what you do. God, we want to know you. We want to be able to understand you, why you do these things. We want to know that you are trustworthy. We want to know that you are good all the time. And so, Father, we once again thank you for sharing with us your secrets, your motivations, your heart. May you be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.